Hello and welcome back to series two of Gary Talks. Firstly, I have to apologize and say sorry it's been so long since we last spoke, but as you know, for all of us, it was a crazy two years, largely due to the pandemic. We were one of the lucky ones in those two years as our agency gkmedia.e scaled significantly, having switched our focus from the private sector to focusing more on the public sector and the EU funding that was coming into Ireland at the time. The flip side of all that chaos, though, was that it's only now I'm beginning to get back to do more of what I love to do. And one of those things is talking to leaders in business and learning from their experiences. We've restructured the business here at GK Media, so we are now committed largely thanks to your engagement and interest in the podcast to release two episodes now every week for you. A full-length interview on a Wednesday and a short Business Bites episode on a Friday. You can also follow Gary Talks now on Instagram and LinkedIn for further content during the week, and I would love to get your feedback too. The whole reason we are producing this weekly podcast is to help you grow either personally and or professionally through the insights and learnings we hear in each episode, especially what I like to call the masterclasses with our guests. For the first episode in our new series, I wanted the following CEO to be our opening guest because for me, he is a wealth of information and wisdom. Yet, although one of the most successful business leaders that I know on a personal level, he's also one of the most humble people that I know. John Power is the CEO and founder of Aerogen, a world leader in acute care aerosol delivery. Over 16 million patients have been treated by Aerogen's product. Aerogen is an Irish medtech company. And they've scaled significantly over the last two years with over 400 employees now and nearly 40% of that workforce are overseas. Their product is in over 75 countries and they are making a massive positive change in the world today. In this podcast, John talks to me about purpose, success, creating value for the world, company culture and their latest groundbreaking product. Sit back and enjoy. This is a GK Media Podcast. Delighted to be joined in studio by founder and CEO of Aerogen, John Power. John, thank you very much for joining us on our new series of Gary Talks. Delighted to be here, Gary. I'm delighted to have you and I really want you as the first guest as well for this series because it goes back to when I first met you a few years ago when you were the recipient of the President's Award of the Galway Chamber and I was just blown away by, I think we spent maybe an hour doing a video with you and probably an hour and a half afterwards talking and learning all about Aerogen and how you turned the, the company in, into what it is now. And I remember something that really stood out for me at the time was you had said that various people in the past have tried to come in and offer to buy the company from you and that you were offered more money than you could ever spend in your entire life. And you always said no. And I said, why? And you pointed to a picture on the wall. Do you remember that and what the picture was? Go on, remind me now. <laughs> <laughs> it was a picture of a child with a nebulizer. Yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, I think that all goes down to um, really what's your purpose, you know? And I mean, it's not, 
without sounding too grandiose, it's like, what's your purpose on the being on the world in the world, and what's your purpose for going to work every day and living a life? And uh, you know, I'm very fortunate in that um, the company uh, I'm involved in is. Uh, a company that makes a massive difference to patient outcomes in critical care all around the world. So, you know, it's a very easy thing. I say if to be successful in business, you need a purpose and ambition. And uh, the purpose we have is so clear that, um, you know, no matter how many problems you encounter in a day, you, as I say, you look at a picture of one of the patients with the product and you think, you know, this is what your work is about and it's what your purpose is for being here. Whereas there's so many people who think that there's ways of making a quick buck. I mean, cryptocurrency has come along the last few years. There's so many influencers online blogging about how they made a quick buck here or there, all these permit schemes. You know, like what would you say to people who just want to become very wealthy very quickly? I'd say good luck to you if you can do it. Um, uh, that's never been uh, what I found in life. Anyhow, normally, uh, you know, to be successful, do you notice? And I've noticed the people around me that are successful in life are, in business terms, are the people who work the hardest. Often, um, you know, they're the people who relentlessly put the effort in to try and perfect whatever they're doing in whatever walk of life they're doing. It's not generally accidental and chancing it on cryptocurrencies and what have you to me is just the most it's just benefits nobody right so you're investing in something that has no benefit other than a financial outcome it's not like you're investing in a business that could again provide good to someone it's it's just to me it's the the opposite of where my interests would lie since the first day i met you you always came across as someone very humble and also something that really caught my attention on our first meeting was the idea of you are constantly investing the profit of the business back into the company. Whereas again, I suppose some people like to build up a little cash pot for themselves mm. and retire early and head off to the Caribbean in a five-story villa. <laughs> but that's not yeah. what you're at. Well, look, everybody needs some degree of financial security. You know, if you reach uh, my age in life and you, you it's nice to think that you've got some level of security behind you and for you and your family so that's fine but you know what more is there that you badly need you know and um it, to me investing back into the company allows us to deliver far more products far more innovation uh, to the market and um that is really the buzz that keeps me going. It's um, do being first in the world with things, not not doing me too, not trying to make a, um, I don't know, a better microphone than the next guy, but trying to create new markets, new products and and services for new markets. And I, I think as a design engineer and sort of, if you like, an innovator or come entrepreneur, whatever you want to call it, that to me is the essence of it. it, it it's creating value and value, not monetary value just for yourself, but creating some value to the world in what you're doing, solving problems. And often I find it's um, solving problems that people don't even recognize are a problem until you get the solution, yeah. right? 
I mean, it, we all do things and carry on doing things um, the way we do it. And it's only when it takes someone with a bit of vision to see that there's a better way of doing it and then present that better way that then you think, oh, yeah, that was a need. People needed that. You know, now we've got a better solution to use. So those are the, the areas that I'm always interested in. Um, it, it's really around what you call blue ocean strategy is the term around it. It's creating new market space. Um, so not going into uh, the red ocean, if you like, or, or where you're uh, competing over, um, you know, everything's done over race to the bottom on price and what have you. I, I prefer to look and invest and create a market space. There were aerosol drug delivery systems out there before you really kind of got stuck in it and focused so much on quality as opposed to quantity in the in the early yeah. days. Like, why did you feel that that was an area that needed to be solved? Yeah. Well, again, as I say, as an engineer and a sort of innovator, I, I, I've always been around trying to solve problems and uh you know, as uh, my wife Bernadette often says, sometimes I want to tell you what the problem is. I'm not looking for a solution <laughs> off you, uh, which has taken me years to try and figure that out. <laughs> so I'm always looking for, um, I guess, they say in med tech world, you know, you want to find unmet clinical needs. So a clinical need that hasn't been addressed. And I say when I talk at the BioInnovate here in Galway to, to pending entrepreneurs in that area, I say, actually, what you want to try and discover is an unrecognized unmet need. That's better because if it's a recognized unmet clinical need, you can bet there's a lot of people trying. If it's of any market value at all, you can be sure there's plenty of people, big companies and small companies trying to solve those problems around the world. But if it's something that is unrecognized at the time and you and you create the problem and a solution to something that wasn't recognized. That is when you really create market. Um, and that was it, the case with uh, Aerogen and uh, aerosol drug delivery for ventilated patients. So uh, originally, uh, that's what I was looking at. I worked on um, uh, development of ICU ventilators uh, here in Galway um, for the old Puritan Bennett company, which is now part of Medtronic. I'd great exposure there to ICU ventilation. And at the time when I was leaving that company, um, there was a need for nebulization on, on uh, a couple of new vent platforms. And so um, they asked me to take a look at it, see whether I could um, get a solution. And when I looked at what the current uh, means of drug delivery were for ventilated patients. These are really sick patients, right? These are intubated patients in an ICU, really um, critically ill patients. And uh, when I looked at the means of drug delivery for them in general, it was pretty poor. I mean, because, you know, you or I can take a tablet or we can take a spoonful of medicine or or whatever. Really, when you're... When you're um, intubated uh, intensive care patient, everything is pumped through the uh, vascular system. Mm. So, you know, all the you, over a third of the people in an ICU anywhere in the world in any day are there because of a respiratory condition, principal respiratory condition. Yet, the, so that's your lungs and your, your, your respiratory tract. But the drugs they were delivering, for, like antibiotics and the like to these patients, were 
pumped in through the vascular system, IV intramuscular or intravenous, to get to the lung, to mm. where the infection was. And I mean, if you think about it, you know, in a world of where we're trying to drive the world towards targeted drug delivery, we see this all the time in in areas of oncology where where you know chemotherapy is so um, can be so harmful and damaging, uh, but it's needed. It's kind of like a blanket attack on on cancer. Whereas if you can uh, get to the site of the cancer directly, and a, you you often need far less drug and so far less uh, side effects. And generally, that's the way way um, drug delivery world is going. And I just thought when I looked at the means of aerosol drug delivery for these patients, it was so poor. And particularly the contrast, which is another area I like to look in, is where there's a mismatch in technology. So if you look at a new ICU ventilator, they cost tens of millions to develop. You know, it is one of the most critical pieces of kit in a hospital. An ICU ventilator uh, is life support. It does what it says on the tin. If that vent fails, the patient could die. There are very few pieces. There's lots of sophisticated equipment in a hospital, but there are very few pieces of equipment that are there to keep you alive. And the ventilator does that. So you can imagine all the companies that work on these ICU vents. And like I say, PB, Med Medtronic, great leader in that area, GE, Philips, all these big names spend tens and tens of millions developing ICU ventilators. But the interesting thing was the means of drug delivery they were using, which is was compressed air uh, driving a, a nebulizer, was the same technology had been available since the 1950s. So, wow. so I always say to people, it, it, it was like walking into a showroom and sitting in a top-range BMW and looking down, and you've got a transistor radio <laughs> in it, and you, you know, it's like there was something not right. To me, and I thought there's got to be a better solution for drug delivery because when you're in an ICU on a vent, the three things that will determine your outcome are going to be number one, the caregivers. So, without it's the nursing staff, the doctors, physicians that are working with you. Number two is going to be the ventilator and how you react with the ventilator, work of breathing with the ventilator. But number three is going to be that drug delivery regime you're you're on and. You know, if you could target to give the drugs better, more more efficiently and effectively into the lung, that's got to be a huge improvement to the patient outcome. And indeed, one of the other areas we, when I was looking at this back then was uh, there was really no means of delivery of aerosolized drugs to, um, to neonates and small peds, mm. pediatric babies. Uh, so um, because... The amount of gas required to drive these jet nebulizers was more than the lung capacity of the of the baby often. So um, again, that was a real unmet need. And you know, some of the most you know obviously delicate, critical patients, and and you and you really were taken away a, a means. There was no means of effective drug delivery to the lungs for them. So what you created was a vibrating mesh mm. that. I, I don't know the speed right. of how often it vibrates yeah. within a second. But. Well, I, well I, I'll tell you, if you, the best way over the years I've tried to explain this to people, it, it, if you, everybody knows like a soil sieve, 
you know, where you shake soil and you, you, you shake out the granules of, of soil or a flour sieve, you know, that you'd put flour and you shake it and you get fine flour particles come through. Well, that is how our technology works. But our sieve is about five millimetres in diameter, so about the size of an end of a, of a pen. So we have a sieve that has a thousand holes in it. Um, we know through aerosol science and, and scintigraphy that if you want droplets to reach the lung to get into the, the critical airways, you need them to be in the range of one to five microns. Uh, now, one to five microns is hard to imagine. What is one to five micron? But if you were to pull a hair from your head now and take a razor blade and chop it down and look at the cross-sectional area, that's about 30 or 40 microns, wow. right, in diameter. So the droplet that will travel into your lung, bounce down the airway and travel into your lung, needs to be around the sort of three, four microns, so about one-tenth of the diameter of a hair. So we do know that as a fact uh, because if you deliver larger droplets than that, much, up, you know, sort of seven, eight, nine, ten micron droplets, they're so large they conglomerate. So they hit one another, they join together a bit like a snowball, a rolling snowball. And so then they won't travel. If they're in the right range, they have enough surface tension so that when the droplets hit one another, they bounce off one another like rubber balls. And so they'll bounce all the way down into the airway. And then when when the airflow reduces, they settle a bit like the opposite to a pint of Guinness. Okay. Uh, the droplets settle to the bottom rather than to the, the, the gas to the top. So we know that, so that's fine. But the hard thing is how do you create the right size droplets? And the technologies that were there prior to our technology were really a bit of a shotgun approach to doing this, that they would create a huge array of droplet size. So a very, in terms of it's engineer and science, a very wide distribution curve, dispersion of droplets. So they'll create droplets from 50 microns down to submicron. Some of them will be in the right range, and the ones that were in the right range, you will hope, will get into the lung. But that's a very small amount of the drug delivered. So our thing is to create... Uh, a tight distribution where all the particles were aimed to be in the right particle size. So that really was the key to the technology. And um, uh, we created this mesh through a, a process called electrodeposition, where actually the, the metal plate is produced atom by atom. So rather than taking out drilling holes, because you can't drill holes effectively of that diameter, um, you deposit atoms of material onto a substrate that has a mask. And then when you peel it off, you end up with the holes. So it's like a negative, if you like. Um, and then we take that plate, punch it out, and then we put a vibrating element, a piezo, on the outside of it. And that piezo acts a bit like a quartz in a quartz watch. When you apply a voltage to it, it oscillates at a very set frequency, and then you set your time by it. In, in our case, we vibrate this little mesh up and down like the person would shake a sieve, but we vibrate it at 128 kilohertz, 
which is 128,000 times a second. So <laughs> it's uh, faster than you'd shake the flower out of a sieve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that creates this mass array of billions of droplets of of the right size droplets of drug that will then be breathed. So you then put it into the breathing circuit if they're on a vent patient is on a ventilator. And as the ventilator delivers the air into the patient's lung, it carries all the drug into the lung. Now, if you have it off ventilator and the patient inhales it, that's fine as well. You can do it either way. Um, yeah, because it's amazing to see from the human eye where you pour liquid in yeah. to the nebulizer and straight away it comes out as That's like right. a white fog, a white Instantaneous. gas. Instantaneous, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's within uh, three milliseconds. And and talking about um, people getting medication uh, back then, you know, into the arm or whatever, getting an injection, it brings us on to more recent times of COVID where people would have been getting an injection mm. for a respiratory illness primarily. Yes. Where the stat I heard is that once you got the injection in the arm, only 35% of the medicine was getting yeah. to your lungs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and in fact, that that's that could be right. Uh, some say about a fifth. Um, we, we know we, we've worked with a vaccine company and we know delivering one fifth of the um, in submuscular dose. So one normally the dose is about 0.5 mLs. Um, and if you deliver 0.1 ml through inhaled, you get a larger immuno response. And you're getting the immuno response in the airway where the virus comes in. So it's the correct. Yeah, immuno. because talk to me about this new product. Yeah. Well, this is a, a co-development we did with a, with a vaccine company where, where they were looking at uh, how could they do mass vas vaccinations, like billions of people. Uh, obviously, billions of people require billions of injections, billions of needles and what have you, which aren't always a good thing, particularly in the, third, in the, the developing world, should we say. The other issue was, in the early days particularly, was uh, actual capacity to manufacture that amount of vaccine and, and, and what have you. So if you could reduce the amount of vaccine delivered, you could nebulize to five times the number of people as you could inject, right? So it made the, the cost, brought the cost down, and it makes it more available, uh, particularly in the developing world. So we're working with a, com uh, a company or a vaccine manufacturer who have put this through their clinical studies, showing that it is far better performance than an injected vaccine. And we're hoping now that that will start rolling out. They've done a th few thousand patients with this to prove it. Uh, and so we hope this will be, and it can be used as very effectively as a booster for any other vaccine. So we developed the world's first inhaled vaccine station. It's a bit like a, a coffee um, dock station yeah. that you basically, because I was trying to think, you know, they, they approached us really asking how cheap could we make the nebulizer because the nebulizer would have to be thrown away after each patient because you couldn't risk cross-contamination. Uh, and I said, look, forget that. You'll never make it. This technology is electronics. It's um, precision metals, nickel palladium. It's, very, it's not something you're going to make in a chuck away uh, cheaper than an, uh, a syringe. But then I thought, well, if we decouple the um, nebulizer from the patient in some way. So if you could deliver the dose quick enough and of a small enough quantity that it was still 
in its suspended aerosol state when the patient inhaled it, then you wouldn't need to dispose of the nebulizer. You could keep using the one nebulizer because the nebulizer would work for thousands of patients. So um, that's what we developed. And it was basically a, a initial, initially we used coffee cups. Uh, aerosol. So it's like the medicine goes into the coffee yeah. cup and you just inhale it. And it takes, uh, it takes about 10 seconds to aerosolize it into the cup, 0.1 ml. And you've got this aerosol in suspension and one breath you know, you've got like a 300 ml or whatever cup and you take one inhalation, you clear it and you brought it into the lung. Yeah, which so, is which something like COVID effects straight away. So the medicine has gone directly yeah, into so, the lungs. I mean, that that is that is the theory and it seems to be playing out. So um, it's definitely, I think, going to be used. Um, it's, it's It was actually a Chinese um, vaccine manufacturer uh, who we worked with. They, they're rolling it out in China. So it is being used in China, and in, we are looking at using it in other parts of the world now, uh, particularly for booster programs. Yeah, because as you said as well, the developing world, I mean, Ireland was probably lucky in the sense that they got so much funding from the EU when COVID uh, became such a pandemic in the country. Yeah. But there's other oh. countries in the world that they don't have no. budgets or, or loans where they can easily start. No, and, and in all, all fairness, that was the approach of the... Um, Chinese vaccine manufacturer was that they, um, apart from the, what is it, two and a half billion or three billion people in China, that they wanted to make the vaccine available to the rest of the developing world and um, to make it cost effective really was mm. key. So you reduce the cost of the vaccine by, you know, four fifths. Um, so it's huge, um, huge benefit. Now you're talking about other companies investing tens of millions mm into technology but you've invested is it about 120 million into yeah. neonatal care for premature babies yeah probably over the over the last um since we start that program about five years ago yeah probably about 60 million's gone into that to date if you were to add up all our other investments because we we basically reinvest all the profit the company makes goes back into um, research development clinical programs we don't pay out dividends to um, shareholders or any it all gets reinvested so um, that means we're constantly plowing uh, big chunks of cash back into R&D and um, our lead program our own drug program is uh, a surfactant for premature babies which again I guess you know, if you're talking about purpose and, you know, that is very, obviously a very strong purpose, but, but also if you're talking about challenge and trying to um, be first in the world with something, premature babies are, are born w without its uh, active, it's a phospholipid protein called surfactant. And in simple terms, it's the lubricant of the lungs. So if you see a premature baby in an incubator, You'll, you'll notice their breathing rate is really rapid, uh, like might be um, 60 breaths per minute, whereas we go maybe 20 breaths per minute. Uh, so the reason for that is that the baby doesn't have surfactant in the lung, it, so it finds it very hard for its lungs to expand for, for taking in oxygen and then contract and expand and contract again. And so they take very shallow breaths 
And that's a problem because they use huge energy breathing. They're trying to breathe with their lungs restricted. And obviously, small prem babies don't have a lot of energy to start with. And you've got to try and re replace the energy they're using. So it, it's a very... Um, Having surfactant in the lung is a key key element for, for survival rate of these uh, prem babies. And about probably 40, 50 years ago, they discovered that um, if you took the um, surfactant from the lungs of calves or pigs, you could distill it down and refine it and pour it into a baby's lung. Uh, and it was really effective at, at lubricating the lung and opening the lungs up to uh, help of breathing for the baby and oxygenation of the baby. Um, the problem is um, surfactant by its nature being this lubricant, it's a bit like, um, it, its constituency is a bit like cream. It reacts a bit like um, fairy liquid or washing up liquid. So if you agitate it, it froths and bubbles. Okay. Um, so it's very, they find it, you can't, no one had been able to effectively aerosolize it, which would be the ideal way to get it into the lung. So what they do right now is they intubate the baby, uh, which is very tricky on a prem, early, tiny, immature airways, stick a tube down into the baby's lung, pour this um, surfactant in and bag it in to push it down into the lung rotate the baby round to try and coat the lung and uh, it, it's it's it is not the nicest process but it is life-saving in many cases for these prem babies but obviously it comes with a lot of potential trauma and difficulties and complications so aerogen developed a new variant of our technology that creates even smaller particles as standard droplets, more in the two to three micron range, which will travel into a prem baby's lungs and airways and alveoli. Um, and we devised a way of aerosolizing the surfactant without it frothing. Um, and so we're in phase 2B clinical trials now in, in uh, America, uh, which should end the end of this year, early next year. Uh, and then with if the results are good, which we hope they will be, we will then move into our pivotal final trials, and that will be done in hopefully Europe, America, and probably China. Uh, and um, this, if we can make this successful, this will be probably the biggest step forward in neonatal care in, uh, and prem baby care in probably the last 40 years or so. It's amazing. So... so that is all funded by Aerogen, by our own company. It's all developed, everything we develop, the technology for delivery, the uh, the, the clinical program, we all do, do that's all done in-house, both by our team in Ireland and our team in California. Um, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so it makes it easy to go to work in the morning, right, when you're doing something like that. Now, loads of problems, it's, it's challenging, loads of COVID, whereas COVID causes great you know, if you like, opportunity for technology in terms of treatment of patients because we were the only technology in the world that was a closed system for ventilated patients. So, you know, in the early days um, of COVID, a lot of the caregivers were getting infected by the um, patients they were ventilating. 
with our technology, it plugs into the breathing circuit. And once the patient is intubated, they're in a closed system. So it's filtered air in, filtered air out. And our system, you can fill, put drug into it without exposing the um, hospital staff to the fugitive emissions from the patient. So we were under massive demand for mm. our products uh, at the start of COVID. In fact, when everywhere was shutting down, I was saying to people, we were trying to run extra shifts, get people working 24-7. You'd hospitals all over the world oh, contacting yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, we did. We Hospitals and the companies, our partners, desperately looking for product. Um, kind of fortunately, we, we scaled up ahead of um, COVID because we were potentially looking at moving our factory that's down in Shannon at one point. Um, Molex were a great partner of ours down in Shannon. That We had all our automation in, inside their factory um, and we contracted some of the manufacturing to them. Uh, but then they decided they were going to shut that plant after 40 years. So we decided we'd build up a big reserve of products. So if we had to move our equipment, we could move it, revalidate it and, and get approved and use whilst we were using all our spare stock. Mm. It's um, like everything happens for a reason, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, we had that stock there ready, and I'll tell you, that got chewed through in a matter of months, a couple of months. We we ended up getting people in to our, our offices there in Dangan and Galway, and basically our engineers, our accountants, our scientists were down on, we created uh, in the office, we cleared the ground floor and created uh, uh, packing lines be to take pressure off our manufacturing sites in Parkmore at Qualtech. We manufacture Aerogen in, over in Parkmore and um, that down in Shannon. As it was, uh, we ended up leasing a large part of the building from Molex um, so we didn't have to move. So that meant we had the spare capacity while we were building up more to um to meet demand so it's mad that when you think about it i mean engineers who have been involved in designing this amazing piece of technology are on their hands and knees mm. sellotaping cardboard boxes oh, yeah. together and putting on shipment slips and and all that and you know again to realize that was before vaccines were available so everybody knew the risk you know and we did get you know sat uh, some people got very sick covid you know but we had no option it was either do you stay at home and, you know, when you've got demand for people looking for your product and, you know, as I say, we ship probably, um, we probably ship 5 million product to, to um, during COVID and uh, most of those during the peaks of the 18 months, if you like, of COVID. And um, I'd say 90% of that product was used in ICUs with COVID patients. So, you know, we, again, unknown the profound mm. impact we had because um it you know when someone's on a on a ventilator there's a lot going on and what keeps that patient alive and, and what have you but you know i know we contributed without doubt we'd have made the difference to thousands and thousands of lives during that period and i think what really shows your character and i suppose the core values of aerogen is an example would be i was speaking to a colleague of mine who sources a lot of his product from China and it became a bidding war at the docks mm. with the shipping companies and you know he could be paying a thousand euro for a pallet and someone would come along and say I'll give you five thousand euro for that pallet and they'd literally take everything off his pallet put their product on and ship it off 
what you did is you didn't go for the highest bidder. No, you, no. you tried to supply as many hospitals as you could. Our, our prices went through the roof of our materials and our transport of our product, but we didn't pass the pricing on to our um, customers um, because we thought it was the wrong thing to do. Um, so we absorbed. And honestly, when you're man of people say, oh, you must have been great for you during COVID, you know, you've got to realise, engineers will realise it and operations people, that when you're trying to um, hugely ramp output, it's not effective generally. You know, you need time to do that in an organised mm. manner and make it effective. We were doing it regardless of effectiveness, just get the most amount of product out the door. And so, um, yeah, I, it, it wouldn't have been the most uh, economic way to make product, but we certainly made sure we got product to everyone. And, do you know, um, some countries indeed basically shut borders and refused to ship product out from their own borders of medical products. And, you know, it was a pretty challenging time for everybody. But one of the things I'm very proud to say is that we shipped to, during that period, 75, 80 countries. So every country that was doing, that we had been involved, and a lot of places that we'd never done business with before came asking us for product. And maybe everyone didn't get as much as they wanted initially, but we made sure every, we, we basically didn't sort of sell out to the highest bidder yeah. or the first biggest order. We we actually contacted companies and said, look, if we send you all your ordering, you can't make enough ventilators to, for that, to use that amount of product. And if we send you all of this, we won't be able to send it to other people who need it now. And so we basically agreed to um, break shipments up and disperse the product so that everybody had it and then we repeated on it meant us doing lots of um multiple shipments which aren't economic either no. um but it was the right way to do it and you know our staff and our operations in in um, Galway there in Dang and the, and the people who worked on that and uh, really night and day to ensure that the product got to everyone they, they just did a an absolutely phenomenal job at a really awful time for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Where did you get your morals from? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's not, I think most people, are, I, I think um, morals, I, I, you know, it's values, is it? Probably you'd say, but where are your values? You know, well, I don't know. But I, f I find um, the vast, vast majority of people would think similar to I do. And certainly I know our staff in Aerogen in Galway and Aerogen in Shannon and in Parkmore, they would all consider I'm no different way of thinking than they are. So I'm not someone that's got particularly high, you know, put myself on some sort of pedestal. I mean, this is everybody in the workforce. It's not, it's not me. But the values you set trickle down. Well, I and create the culture within the company. Yeah, I think that values are, yeah. And, uh, you know, up until recently, we never, um, I wouldn't be one that would stand up and expound about what your value should be, tell someone what their value should be. I think what you do is you set an example and people then follow, right? That's how I think the, the best teams work, right? You don't have to be... Um, you don't, well, people don't want to and, and shouldn't, you shouldn't be telling someone what values you think they should have. You should say, these are the values 
I have maybe. This is the value I tr- values I try and operate our business by. And if you like, if if that resonates with you, then you're a good fit in the business. Mm. Uh, and um, I think that's really what we tried to do in Aerogen over the years. But you've gone from about 80 employees to over 400 in yeah. just a short period of time in a few years. Yeah. So how do you maintain even company culture? Which well, that's that, that's that's a good one. Uh, and as I say, we never used to. Um, I wouldn't be one to be honest. I've worked. I've been in the workforce for nearly forty years, and big companies, small companies, and seen. And I've seen a lot of the thing where there's you know value. You know, this is our. These are our values. You know, and you're part of the family of the company and as I say you're part of the family until they decide to make you redundant and then you're an orphan very quickly Um, so I never liked I didn't buy into I didn't really buy into people telling me you know what 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 value you know trying to teach that sort of thing to me so I, I but the problem is when you have a company of 400 people, as you say, and we have offices all over the world. You know, we have 150 people work overseas and some of them, you know, uh, might be like in Australia, in in uh, Canada, in, you know, anywhere in the world, India, uh, Dubai, every, and so you've got different um, cultures, different nationalities, and how do you get all those people to collaborate and work well together. So then you do need to actually um, visualize, if not verbalize, <laughs> the, um, the the values of the business and how we are as a business. But it but it's good to um, it, it's good to do that. I think we've gone through an exercise of of, of that um, now in in the past year in um, Aerogen, and I think the people particularly a lot of the people who couldn't travel because of COVID and what have you. So they were, we were hiring people abroad and had people abroad that had never been to Galway to understand that culture, if you like. So they really appreciated having sort of a guideline of how, how we see ourselves as, you know, innovative, um, ambitious, um, you know, a caring company, a company that cares about what we do. Um, and they buy into it, you know. Yeah, because for me, it's scary upscaling so fast because mm. you could get one bad egg and it creates that toxic environment. And I think every business out there has at one stage or another paid witness to that within the organization. Again, I don't know of anyone in, in my career I've met that came to work to do a bad job or be disruptive or, or, or you know, that's generally not the way people are i think uh, most people want to go to work and feel they're doing a good job whatever it is and i mean you know my, i came my parents are galway people but you know i grew up in london and um you know i left school at 16 i worked on building sites and what have you before i went and did my engineering night school and so you know everybody i work with nanny walker life always wants to try and do a good job uh, and and do something they think is valued. Actually, it's often the company's fault, not the person's fault, that they feel that some angst with with the way things yeah. are. Um, you know, but there again, you can get very good people who just aren't the right fit 
in a particular area in a business at a particular time. They might be a perfect fit at a different time in an evolution of a business. Like some people only like working in small groups, find it harder. You so you you know with Aerogen we 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 tried as the company we've had to grow really to survive as a business and. Um, you know, so some of those growing pains, you, you know, some people don't feel part of that, you know, bigger organisation or find it harder. Uh, and they might prefer to work in a smaller entity and that happens. And, you know, you get people who are from much bigger companies, big, multi, you know, sort of tens of thousands. They can find it quite difficult as well at 200 or 400 or 600 people. So, um yeah, it's not people are bad. I think it's just that maybe it's the match of the person at a particular time in a company's evolution. Just to get a few stories from you. You mentioned your parents are Galway people. Mm. They're from Uchtarard? Uh Well, my father's Uchtarard, yeah, a Powers pub there in Uchtarard. Um, Which is the thatched pub yeah, as you're that, coming in on the that, right. That's right. Uh, and uh, you, you spend a lot of time then they're sitting on the stone bench out the front um years ago as a kid and then my mother's uh families they they were Cronleys from Ross Cattle sort of Clannan Parish okay um and then both we and when we moved back here myself and Bernadette my wife for uh, how many years ago was it um it would have been uh yeah about 30 32 years ago I think um but we moved to my Cullen uh, which we thought, you know, my, I didn't realise I even had family in my Cullen, but it turns out both my grandmothers were my Cullen women. Okay. So, of course, I had all those sides of the family, and some of my great friends are, are um, family members from my Cullen. So it's really the three parishes. I think all my relations really came from those three parishes. And you grew up really within an Irish community in London. Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, it's. I'm not really proud to say it, but I didn't have any English friends growing up. They were all of Irish, either born in Ireland and been brought over with their parents when they were looking for work in in London, or of um, Irish parents born in London. Uh, and they're still my friends. You know, like my, my some of my best mates that are mates I went to school with when I was five, and we played in football together all the way through and we we played for south london irish football club and um yeah they they would all be my club every one of them i would still know you know so as good friends so and we were we did we lived in a real tight irish community in london so speak with the cockney accent (laughs) but with the irish heart you know it's uh, yeah yeah and i mean some of them are good you know their kids now another generation on and some of them are phenomenal um irish musicians and you know so some great um that those traditions that were passed down from their parents to to them and then on to their kids and irish dance and music kaylee all of that oh yeah so it's um still strong really strong over there yeah when you came to my colon then you set up a company which eventually evolved into Erigen and it's amazing to see where Erigen is now but to think that it was a company of just a handful of people working over a butcher shop in a village in the west of Ireland. Well when I came when I moved back to Galway I'd say back to Galway because my my mother particularly she always used to say you know we're only visitors in this country John remember that in England Mm -hmm. so she was always home is Galway 
So when I came uh, home, if you like, um, it, it was originally to do a project out at Knock Airport, which was an aerospace project, uh, bringing back a joint venture uh, from the UK to do lightweight structures for aircraft at, at Knock, where they were trying to develop an industrial zone there, an industrial freeport. Now, unfortunately, GPA went to go public. Anyone old enough will know about that story. And the and the aerospace industry took a real dive, if you pardon the pun. Um, and, you know, Ireland had been really betting on aerospace. You know, after the, after the if you think of the evolutions of Irish industry and you think of um, the electronics computer industry, came, you know, with the Wangs and the Digitals and all of these guys, Dell. And then, you know, when that was starting to wane, that business, Ireland was looking, what what is our next industry sector to bet on? And, yeah. and you know, and that became um, aerospace. So you had Shannon Aerospace, Team Air Lingus, all of these. And, and it was to build Ireland into this big aerospace hub. But unfortunately, GPA, Guinness Peak Aviation, were the largest aircraft leasing company in the world. And when they um, when they went to go public, basically um, um, the model didn't hold up to the analysts. Now, in fact, they could well have been right because they forecast huge amount more air travel. And of course, people at back then were thinking, "Well, people aren't going to go in airplanes three or four times a year." Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, people go every week now. Uh, but um, so they had pre-bought aircraft based on that. Um, sort of expansion of, uh, and when the market didn't think it was going to hold up, the business collapsed, and basically all the money ran out of um, um, aviation really fast. So you know, from being the darling next darling of industry, suddenly all the funding for aerospace went. So uh, you know, at that time, I had to think that business we had to um, close, unfortunately. And, and was uh, that your own business? Yeah, yeah. I was partnering with a, a, a local um, man here in Galway um, who was originally from Mayo, um, and we we basically it couldn't it wasn't viable. Once once GPA it happened, it basically took down all aerospace programs or new stuff around it. And we great technology that we got um, through NASA actually been well 3M who'd used it on NASA with NASA on the space shuttle and we were going to utilize that technology but anyway I had to find other work and I did some work then um, for uh, it was interesting I say it was uh, tanks for Gaddafi but what it was was <laughs> irrigation tanks I I got a job solving a problem of um, with these big irrigation tanks out in Libya the great man-made river was a um, um, a water source, fresh water that was uh, buried for it underground um, thousands of miles out into the desert. Um, and it was discovered when they were looking for oil. And, and this was fr fresh water, drinking mm. water. And so, of course, that's almost as valuable as oil in, in desert areas. So uh, Gaddafi at the time had um, this huge engineering program to uh, pump that water to all the villages. The water, I think it was 20,000-year-old uh, water wow. um, from these this underground wells, uh, and it was pumped to all the villages and towns and irrigation. I mean, you know, before he became a loony, he was actually um, 
very socialist minded and he put in place healthcare, education, all these type of things. And then he just lost the run of it somewhere along the yeah. line. But part of it was that irrigation program and uh, an Irish company, Mercury Engineering, got the um, job of putting tanks into the villages, these steel tanks that would fill with water from this underground source piped along and then but the problem was uh, they were finding that you'd open this big valve port the water would fill in but it would bring loads of the muck and sediment from from this uh, prehistoric kind of uh, water source um, and then people would have to go in with buckets and clear it all out so I designed this um, retrofitable um, balancing tank with a filter on it that would fit over these that you could have a big lever like on a cistern on a mm. in a bathroom cistern um, automatically fill and was then easy to empty the um, the residue so yeah I did that was tanks for so anything really I didn't at the time I didn't have a bean in the house like we were flat broke and I I was I ended up getting a five thousand pound at the time they were the first people to do um loans online for home improvement for an extension for my house that i had no intention of putting up <laughs> i just needed five grand to keep paying the mortgage wow. otherwise the house would have gone from over us and you know i had three young kids at the time under five and it wasn't good but yeah thankfully the as i say the check came in from colonel Gaddafi. now it wasn't colonel Gaddafi, but it was it was from that project and uh, basically that put put me back on my feet again and I did a couple of other projects and isn't it great though that you were allowed or given I don't know is the right word the freedom but the space to even carry on and do your discoveries in engineering when you have a wife at home and three young kids and you weren't being pushed to just go <laughs> and work in a factory or start cleaning the roads or, or do something uh, that's considered normal to bring an income in i you see i kind of always was a bit like i left school at 16 i was you know um i i wanted to i was out i used to work in a nightclub at 16 and um you know work on the building sites at week weekends in my father's family and all the relation so i was always earning money so i knew i could always earn money by yeah. doing something now I had an inkling towards engineering, innovation and development of products. So I went that route and I did trained as a draftsman and uh, did my engineering through night school and what have you. But I, I guess, you know, I did work in, in large companies, in multinationals from time to time. And that pretty much was at time where my, you know, it got to a point that I needed to a kind of regroup, if you like, you know, go and get a normal job again yeah, in inverted yeah. commas. So I, I I had to do that from time to time. But it, to me, I always preferred the idea of, I, I you know, working for myself was something I always wanted to do. And then you bet on yourself. And I've been involved in failures, you know, as I say, that cost me like everything pretty much at times. But I'd rather I was always of the way and, you know, that I'd rather bet on myself uh, and that I can get a team around me to to be successful rather than be reliant on someone making a decision on my future, maybe 5,000 miles away, you know, in America, deciding whether, you know, this plant stays open, shuts or whatever. And, you know, that, that, that uncertainty, yeah. I, I would rather, there's a risk doing stuff yourself, but there's a risk also been reliant on 
in our authors as well. Yeah, because that's a good example because you did start off over a butcher shop mm. a, about 25 years ago, I might mm. call it, and then you moved into Dangan maybe five years later. Yeah. And then at one stage in the early days of Aerogen in Dangan, there was this thing where you had to file chapter 11, is it? Yeah, yeah. They, the, um, you see, oh, it's a long story, but, but you know, the original technology that we used, there was um, the, a... It was a company called Aerogen in America that that had been set up in venture capital in, in out in Silicon Valley in Sunnyvale, but the original company were working on micro combustion engines. Uh, an Israeli um, guy, Ehud Evry, had developed the technology for spraying fuel, and basically the VC said out there, "Look, you know this is going nowhere with fuel." Don't see a market for it, but if you could spray drugs, insulin, and what have you for um, diabetes patients, that would be something. So they formed a VC, as you do out in California, of company. And um, I was working on the technology in Ireland on on a couple of alternative technologies, and then I got introduced to the people out there through an old friend of mine. I flew out, seen what they were working on. They were a long way off what you needed for drug delivery at that time, but I seen the the potential of it that it could be utilized in in where I needed it in acute care and so long and short of it we 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 got an in license originally for acute care from them to develop the technology for hospital use and whilst they worked on insulin inhalers and then we merged the companies uh the CEO at the time Jane Shaw she said you know you guys are doing such great engineering and work come and join us and we'll be one company. And so I said, well, all right, we'll do that. So we we became we became Aerogen Ireland mm. and then we went public on NASDAQ uh, in 2000, uh, very successfully got out the door just before the market.com came and the markets crashed. Um, NASDAQ went from 5,000 points down below 2,000 in a matter of weeks. Um, and basically there was no money for insulin development or anything so really we became the only game in town for a long time our acute care business was beginning to sell products but not enough to be able to sustain a publicly listed company and um, we ended up getting to a situation where it looked like the company was in danger uh, of going under but we got acquired then by a a larger uh, pharma company out in California and suddenly I found myself, hang on, I'm back working for a big multinational somehow. I'd yeah. set up my own business above a butcher shop, find myself working for this big multinational pharma company, which is not what I wanted to be doing. But uh, I negotiated with them a deal, basically, to buy back out my side of the business. And so I raised money back in 2007, end of 2007, and bought the business back and sort of leveraged that. That was leveraged back debt and like a leveraged MBO, they call it. And basically um, set about from day one, I said, right, we're going to be profitable, whatever it takes the first year. And thankfully, every year since we've been profitable, because when you're profitable, you control your own destiny. It's when, you, when you're not profitable mm. and you've got to go out and bring in money, then you're at the bequest and uh, of others. So, to me, um, Aerogen is like debt-free company. If we choose to take debt, it's on our terms. We we choose to do it, but we not we don't need borrowings to drive our business. 
Yeah. Uh, and that's important. And then we kind of cut across accordingly. We could have grown a lot quicker. Um, even although you say it's fast growth, it was controlled growth. I always controlled the growth of the business within our means so that we didn't overstretch. Um, we stretched, but not to a point of cracking. Um, and, and so um, that's kind of puts in good financial, strong financial position. Yeah, and you're in the driving seat then to make the the, the decisions you want to yeah, make. Totally. Yeah, totally. How do you, John Power, deal with stress? Oh my God, that's a difficult one. I, I look. I've been in situations, as I was telling you about, there where I had three kids under five and didn't have a literally a bean in the house. Where I was thinking, how the hell am I going to feed them and you know keep this going without the house going front and so that is stressful right and other people i'm not the only one who's been in that situation you know we've had a couple of big downturns in the country here over the years and you know the last one if you go back to 2008 and and that sort of time and there was um a lot of people you know hit by the crisis then a lot of people that worked really hard and were doing good working their, their their butt off to create something business and ended up losing everything um, for, through no, often through no fault of their own, particularly the, some of the smaller people who were brought down by larger mm. players, um, and um, so it's not it's not anything peculiar to me. But I guess one of the things I found was that you know having hit the bottom of the barrel, if you like, and being in a desperate situation and i don't think there's much worse than feeling that you can't look after your family or or whatever you do feel bad i used to pretend to sleep at night so my wife would sleep you know because uh, she couldn't sleep because i wasn't yeah. sleeping so it was crazy uh but um do you know what when you get when you find you've been in that situation and do you know it isn't everything uh you you can get out of it you do somehow pull yourself and survive um and so really when i look at things these days i always consider what's the worst thing that can happen here you know uh and can i live with that and cope with that and generally i think yeah i can manage you know i i, I know i would have the resilience to manage um so I think we all build up sort of relative stress as well. You know, there's real stress. If someone is sick in your family, and or, or, that is stressful. Mm. And there is no way in the world that isn't going to be stressful, right? And you, you, you very hard to mitigate how you feel and the concern you feel for people. But when it's business, it is, as, you know, the Sopranos would say it's only business, yeah. you know, and it's true. It's only business. It's 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 not generally going to be life or death, um, and um, so I think telling yourself that 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 doesn't mean you're going to work and do everything possible to get yourself back into a fighting position again. Um, but I guess you learn to live with these things, and if you you know some people don't want that quite rightly and some people don't want the stress that business brings you and they want a steadier life and we all hear about work-life balances and what have you now in my life I would say it's it, it's been a work-life trade-off <laughs> you know it's not a balance I can't think it was perfectly balanced and you know you have to give a lot give up a lot to to um 
because uh, as I said right at the beginning of this, what you notice with people that are successful in business, they they generally are the people who work hardest. So yeah, I can live with it. I, I I think I get my wife says I get Burnett says I get more stressed over when Ireland are playing rugby or Chelsea are on TV, you know, playing, <laughs> and I probably do. I feel myself yeah. getting really stressed and. Um, but uh, and Connacht, my uh, rugby, you know, I I I'd be very big fan of rug of uh, rugby and Connacht over all the years. And um, actually, I was uh, out of the blue. I was asked to be um, chairperson of Connacht there recently, so wow. I took that role on. God knows oh, how it's kind of like a busy man get busier, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, if I, again, I felt obliged in the sense that I, if I think we can do anything to help great progress Connacht made over the years I, I, you yeah. know if I can be of help I'll try and do it that's fantastic that's mm. brilliant what about morning routines do you have a certain routine I like quiet mornings right five kids I had right or we have Bernadette and I uh, thank god they're all healthy um uh and so we had a busy house all the time through all these companies starting IPOs MBOs all this we had kids running everywhere you know so um um but i found now as i've got older i like the quiet in the morning <laughs> i i mean i'm quite a like you know i'm a person who likes people and company and uh very social and i i love nothing more than going in up to the sports ground and a few pints with the lads and the games and you know going away to rugby or whatever and so I'd be, a, and I'd be quite a party guy if, you know, like late night's great for me. Yeah. I'm a night person. I think better at night. But in the morning, I normally set the alarm clock for seven o'clock and I like to have a nice quiet start to the day because once I hit the office, it's busy nonstop. Yeah. And I mean, so I tend to get up in the morning, go down. I always, the one meal, breakfast, muesli, yogurt, fresh fruit every day. Uh, I need a breakfast. Even if I was getting a flight and I was leaving the house at three or four in the morning to get up to a flight in Dublin, I'd still sit and have my breakfast because I need that. Yeah. You know, I need that peace in the morning before I kick into stuff. Um, so that's really my routine. And then I you know, I try and do keep myself fit. I've, I used to always, as I played football until I was in my 50s, early 50s, I was still playing football. But I I um, do circuit training two nights a week at work. We do circuit training. And there's a crew of us who go out, rain, hail or snow, every uh, it, two evenings a week and do one hour of intense circuits. And uh, that's great fun. And it's kind of like being in a little team doing yeah. that. And um and I try and run a bit, although the knees are uh, not as good as they used to be. It's probably actually the only thing I feel, you know, that holds me back a bit is my knees. You know, I'm a, it, from my snap cruciate playing football and reconstruction surgeries and all that stuff. So, but otherwise, I'm, I feel pretty um, energetic and youthful. <laughs> you look great. Affirmations, vision boards. Do you do any of that sort of stuff? Yeah, do you know, I'm not really, no. No, I, I don't really. I don't, I know people find that very helpful. I find the odd over the course of the years. I did a distant MBA from Oxford year, years ago and um, it really got me into, I used to love military history just for some odd reason. Um, 
and strategy, military strategy. And then I found when I did the MBA, I found all the strategy stuff just intriguing. And so I love reading books on business strategy and the like, and military strategies. Yeah. But but um, so some of the snippets I like, I keep those. I mean, I've probably got on my desk, I have a post-it, a small post-it, uh, and I have my business philosophy really written on that post-it and it's three or four lines of things that you know I think about all the time I think purpose and ambition you've got to keep both you can't have be really ambitious but work in something that has no great purpose in life and you know it's fine having purpose but if you can't have ambition to make it in something that's so you've got to keep the balance there purpose ambition uh some of the things I liked in business I've heard over the years the two things that a lot this upsets a lot of people. But uh, Peter Drucker, who was a great business philosopher, he said, you know, really the only two differentiators a company really has are how it innovates and how it markets. Everything else is a cost center. Uh, and when you boil it down, that is true. You know, you've got to have great innovation and great marketing to be mm. successful. One without the other is no good. All the other things that are so vitally important, how you create great quality products and manufacturing, that is, you know, and we have the best in the world here in Ireland in, in medical for that. That is all required, but it isn't going to differentiate you. Really, it's how you innovate, what your innovation value you bring to market and how you um, market that. Uh, those are key. So those are a couple of the things. And I like another one that they're from, uh, I think it was a Harvard one, is like the, um, you know, when you think about the big things that differentiate successful, long-term successful businesses over the years from all industries, they they did a big survey and interviewed all these people and thought, is it the leadership? Is it some super um, technology strategies they have or whatever? Uh, and it ended up being very, just boiled down to a couple of things, really. One was better before cheaper, you know, that okay. these companies yeah, yeah. always concentrated on having the best product, not the cheapest product. Uh, and, and the other one was value or revenue before cost. So if they had a million pounds to spend, they would spend that million pound on their marketing commercial driving the business rather than spending it a million pounds trying to reduce the cost of the product. Now you have to do all of those things, yeah. but it's where your priorities lie. So uh, it said it's the three rules of successful business, it was called. And it said, actually, the first rule was better before cheaper. The second rule was, this. these were the only common trends in these successful companies. Second one what, what was um, revenue before cost. And the third one was follow the first two rules. <laughs> uh, and it said really, and this was interesting because it was like companies like McDonald's, um, you know, Medtronic in MedTech, um, um, in food industry like McDonald's, companies like WD-40, one product company never produced anything other than WD-40 yeah. since the Second World War and have been phenomenally successful at it. You know, how do you do that? Yeah. Uh, and so um, that kind of stuff I like to keep, those sort of bullets yeah. I yeah. have, but they don't change. I, I, I've got, I've had them for years, I've had those, and they're just on a post-it pad on my... And so when I'm thinking about something to do with business, I, I say, am I 
following those. Excellent. You know? Yeah, because I, I learned in the early years as well of business, I always felt bad saying no to people when they were yeah. looking for us to do a gig for them. And I learned that those who you did a job for, for virtually nothing, you know, but you were promised the sun, moon and stars yeah. that you would get from it. You really devalued your work and you were ne- you never felt valued by them. Whereas if you say, look, this is the quality, this is the experience that we're bringing to a job and this is how much it costs, they value that then. There's truth to that, Gary. You've got to sometimes explain the value, you know, and it's value. And in our game, it's a term called value innovation. So it's, um, you know, if you think when people make decisions on what service they'll use or what, what product they'll use, what you're really looking to do is drive up the um, to to drive up the innovation, whilst you're keeping the cost controlled. So you you what you get in the middle of that is value innovation. So the more value and innovation you create to that person, so the more in in terms of service industry, it might be innovation in terms of a product, but it might be an innovative way of presenting your service to them. Um, you need to explain it sometimes to people. I think, you know, sometimes people don't appreciate the differentiated value you bring. So, um, you know, the key to strategy in business, as I explain to people often, it's one of the words that gets thrown around all the time at the front of everything, What you know, strategic this, strategic mm. that. But the key to strategy is how you turn your... Um, distinctive capabilities so what makes you different why why is gary and the service you offer different right these are your distinctive capabilities what you offer how you turn them into a competitive advantage and it's as simple as that you know so what you have in your company what is distinct in that company and the advantages you and then how you transfer that to a competitive advantage which the customer will see value in. And being able to market that as well, as yeah. you say. Yeah. So it's really, it's actually, you know, you can do MBAs, and, but it actually boils down to pretty simple stuff. You talk about going to the sports ground with the lads, having a few pints and mm. doing your, your, your workouts as well afterwards yeah. with your colleagues. How big is your inner circle? Ah, inner circle. That's an interesting, <laughs> that's an, I've never been asked that before. Um, I have a huge amount of f- people I would be very friendly with, you know, and call friends. I probably have a very small group of extremely close, but I, that's probably the same as everybody, you know, a handful of really close friends that I could trust with anything. And, you know, I've got like some people who've been great mentors to me over the years, like uh, who were on uh, Charlie Mulligan, who was dig- set digital up here and in, in, was instrumental in growing digital in Galway. And then Bernard Collins, who was set up Boston Scientific here and what have you. And so those guys have been, Charlie's retired off the board now, uh, but Bernard's still on But those guys have been great mentors to me. And so they would be in that circle, if you like. doesn't mean I'm out playing golf every day with yeah. anyone or anything, but there are people that I wouldn't speak to maybe from one end of the year to the other. Like I've got one of my greatest 
friends is in uh, lives in America, um, and we met years ago, and we just became great buddies. And like, I wouldn't necessarily talk to him for months and months on end. And then we'd organise and we'd go off and do a hike. We did a hike there just before COVID, luckily, 280 kilometres across the um, mountain range down the spine of Italy. Wow, uh, and the two of us could meet up and we hadn't met in person for years before that. And we were like back as one straight off. And there's very few people you could do that with, you know, yeah. go hiking for 10 days on mountains. Uh, you need to feel comfortable. But we went up Mont Blanc together and what have you. And he's he, so we just those sort of friends are few, you know. And I've got like my cousin, great cousin, a cousin of mine in Galway, in my cousin, great friend of mine, Billy Connolly. Is a, a, and so the few people like that in your life that you have that are your great um, friend, and of course your family. You know, you're in a circle family, and you're. You know, my kids, their partners, their husbands, wives, you know. So um, I'd be a big family man. I love family. I mean, my wife, Bernadette, you know, we, come, we'd have like 14, 15 round for a Sunday dinner and roast before COVID hit, <laughs> you know. Even yeah. when COVID hit, she was making all the roast 14 and 15 and passing it out the window <laughs> to people, you know. So, um yeah, family be very important and, you know, my relations uh, that I have are very important to me. And so, yeah, I, I, I have great circle of friends and acquaintances and, you know, I, I do like, as I say, being social. I, you know, go for a pint or whatever and, you know, if I chat to anyone wherever in the world I am, I'll mm. start talking, you know, it's no problem. So what is success for you then? And I know it's often thrown out there but you know is it in your career is it in your family is it in yourself uh yeah i think it is in all three isn't it i mean um someone uh once said to me about that very knowledge person i had great have great time for jane shaw and she said you know in life she said you've got to try and do a bit for your family uh, and, and you know that's you've got to do that and there's you've got to do a bit for your community you got to do a bit for your country. You got to do a bit for the world. And that, you know, if you can, if you can feel you're assisting and working and benefiting in all those areas, that's success, right? Mm. So um, I, I think that's it. You know, you got to try and we we think there's a lot of people that are in dire situation, and you know, trying to be Aerogen as a company, we give huge amounts of help and support and charity out to you know locally internationally wherever you know yeah because even recently there was uh, a big flood in kentucky hmm. uh and yeah. you raised funds yeah. uh and even though like your product has nothing directly <laughs> got to do with people in kentucky who've no. been affected by the flood but still you raise funds yeah we we have a thing at work we say look we will match anything that you now we do a lot of uh, like we were the, one of the first companies on the COVID um, response by uh, UNICEF to raise funds for uh, vaccines for the developing world. Um, there's a few other Irish companies joined us on that. Um, so we would give largely to that those sort of um, charities. But when we say to people at work, you if you if there's a charity and charity event, you will drive yourself. We will match whatever you raise. 
So, um, you know, one of the uh, one of our um, people in that region in the states, she wasn't from Kentucky herself, but she was from a neighbouring state. She uh, raised money to fill a van, a big sort of transit type, small lorry actually, full of goods and what have you, um, and drove it down to Kentucky just to disperse it, you know, give out to people on in the affected area. So we matched whatever money yeah. was raised. We said Aerogen had come on alongside them and do that. We That's what we've done around the world, really, in, in, in charity, yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. As we come towards the end, what's your favourite mistake? Another tricky one. Favourite mistake. God, that, you, you know, that's one that you've hit me with a couple of good ones. <laughs> For, for, I don't, I, you know, being an engineer, I don't like getting things wrong. <laughs> um, so I'm not big into, there, there's lots of mistakes I've made in business, in life over the years, but fundamentally, a lot of these things make you, the old saying, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And I, I do believe that, that you grow, resilience is a thing you can develop over time. And um, uh, so, if you don't make the mistakes, you never really learn, you know. Um, so not being, I think actually not being afraid of making mistakes is a big thing. And I'd always risk, I, I you know, I'd take a chance. I guess I yeah. calculated. Mm. I try, I, you know, I weigh up and, you know, you can't be, um, to if you're trying to, run a business and you've got people's lives and livelihoods to think about, you can't be reckless. But I would take calculated risks, you know, not be afraid of it and figure if you fail, you fail and you've got to accept that. You know, that's one of the things I think that people got to learn and it's a good thing in young people. You know, life is not f much as all the, the popular sort of approaches. Life is full of successes. It's not. It's, mm. it's a mixture of failure and success. But, you know... You've got to appreciate the lessons you learn in the failures. That's Then it's not such a failure if you learn from it. Wise words. John Power, founder and CEO of Aerogen, thank you so much for joining us on Gary Talks. My pleasure, Gary. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gary Talks. Please do spread the word about the podcast. And remember, you can follow Gary Talks on Instagram and LinkedIn. Finally, just to let you know that every Friday we will have a short bonus episode called Business Bites. So make sure you pop back and join me again. <laughs>